We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pros, when the job demands more of the supplies you use most, start with Lowe's. Because at Lowe's, we stock the right quantities you need for any size job. And at Everyday Savings, like up to 30% off drywall, drywall accessories, and insulation every day when you buy in bulk. Order at Lowe'sforpros.com and we'll have your order ready for pickup with dedicated pro loaders to get you loaded up and back to the job site faster. For your next job and the next, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back, Gator Nation, to the podcast. I'm Alan Williams. I'm here with James DiVirgilio. Maybe you're sad, maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you're hopeful. Whatever you're at, we're here to talk you all the way through it. We're going to talk about the debacle that was the Missouri game on homecoming. We're going to look ahead to South Carolina. We're going to explain what went wrong on defense, what went wrong on offense. Should we be playing Kyle Trask? You're going to hear all of James's thoughts and mine. Welcome to the show. What is up, James? Another year, another quarterback controversy. <laughs> Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. <laughs> the annual Gator Quarterback Derby. I, I can't say that it's not great for this podcast. Uh, we've got a lot of Twitter messages, and my my good buddy, one of my college roommates, Jason Landry, texted me and, and kind of made that same joke. Uh, and it's been true. Since we started this podcast, Alan, we've had nothing but quarterback controversy after quarterback controversy. And I would like to say, for the record, patting us on the back, that we've more or less called these almost all pretty correctly. We said before this year that 
Frank's was who he was, and we're going to talk about where we are now with that. And we, we talked about Will Greer, we talked about a lot, and so on and so forth. So in a way, we're really sick of this, but at least hopefully you find this as an outlet to get some some words of wisdom or at least some hard opinions that could be wrong but are stated matter-of-factly to give you something to think about. Yeah, we're going to give you our unbiased, biased, because we're fans, look. We're going to tell you what we think, and you know we're – we're hopeful, we're fans, but we're also not going to sugarcoat anything because we want you to be actually informed of what's really going on. And when it's bad, we'll say it's bad. And when it's good, we'll say it's good. And hopefully this is a place to sort of, I know every time we lose, I feel terrible on Sunday. And by the time I get to Monday, I'm ready to hash it out and like, look at what went wrong and how can we get better? And there might not be anything that better encapsulates maybe how I view the program than what our mutual friend Rick Kingsley said on our text thread, he's a, a you know lifelong Gator who lives in Tallahassee, but he had mentioned there's kind of two types of people that support a football program. There's the first type, which is which is probably me to a T, that is always looking for what's best for the program. And sometimes when you look through that lens, my kind of opinions could seem even harsh, maybe negative. But in reality, I'm quickly trying to get to what's best for the program. And then the other type of fan is more of a cheerleader in essence, where it's sort of I'm going to support whatever the program puts out there, because that's what's best for the program. And those two types of fans can, of course, coexist. But sometimes I think during losses like these, you really see that two, those two style of fans kind of contrast. Whereas one is almost feeling like jumping off ship, but they're not. They're trying to say, how do we, how do we articulate and solve the problem we have to get to where we want to go? And the other fan base is like, why, why are we not just supporting these people? And, and that, both have their pluses. Like they're not. They there's do. no wrong way to be a fan. I guess there is. If you're an FSU fan, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, but that's, that's always wrong. Yes, the both of those can coexist. Both of us, I think, lean towards you know the first style of fandom. But um, wherever you're at on that spectrum, we're here for you. We're here, and this should be a therapeutic, revealing, hopefully a, an answer-based episode for you. That's our job. That's what we do. And if you like the content, head on to Facebook, give us a like. Uh, or become a patron on Patreon, or do both. But we certainly love that. We love our donos. And this week, we had several several guys go from small donos to large donos, and a large dono to go to an even larger dono. Hey, uh, so Elliot Parrish, thank you. Appreciate the support, as always. Bill Hood, awesome. Appreciate that support twice now in the same season upgrading. That's incredible. And then Michael Reeves, uh, small dono to large dono bump up. Appreciate you as well. Thanks to all of our patrons. Appreciate all you guys supporting us now. We have so many more than we ever imagined we would. We enjoy getting... Each week in my email box, I get the update when someone becomes a new patron and upgrades. It's fantastic. And of course, still, even though on Twitter someone asked me, what will it take to dethrone Alexander Levin? King of the mountain. And the answer is, I cannot tell you. Until someone gets an amount higher than his, he will continue to be the top supporter of the Gator Nation football podcast. And also, uh, shout out to Scott Strickland if you're listening right now. What's up? Welcome to the Gator Nation football podcast. And that might seem obscure, but we had a little birdie tell us over the weekend that Scott was going to be tuning into this podcast. So, Scott, if you're there, welcome. And uh, we won't talk about the speaker system in the swamp just yet. We'll save that for a we'll later, save that. later meeting between us. <laughs> All right, now let's get right into the opening thoughts here. So we said last week we knew we probably were not going to be able to run the ball with the same sort of success we ran against Georgia. With. And we could not. And we could not. And we knew that we needed to pass the ball. And we, and we could, could not. not. And we knew that we had to stop Missouri from passing the ball. 
and we could not. No. So the main things we talked about and the things we said that we thought we could win because we could do enough to slow them down, we could not do it. And then lastly, I specifically said on the podcast, I'm going to pick us to win even though my feeling, my preseason pick was Missouri because Dan Mullen had done such a good job stealing points, which we stole none of in this game. And we didn't end up on the wrong side of the turnover ratio in this game, but we didn't generate any. So I think this game, maybe more so than any other game, indicated what kind of thin ice we're on this season with this yeah. team. And it displayed it because we just didn't have the stuff we needed to be able to beat what was a good Missouri team. And in fairness to Missouri, I think their own media is calling this the best game they have played in many moons. They Certainly the best game of Drew Locke's career. And, and I think all those things are true. They looked really, really good. And don't forget that they had a much more emotionally draining loss than we did, potentially, in blowing a game in epic fashion against Kentucky and then having to go on the road to play us. So if you want to say, well, we were in a bad place, they were at least in the same place with regards to their feelings about their season, their time, their game. So you can't look at that either. So the opening question here, Alan, is, is the obvious one. Are you super discouraged? mildly discouraged or maybe kind of where we thought we'd be. Where are you right now? I wouldn't say I'm super discouraged. Uh, This was a tough outing because it exposed every single one of our flaws. Um, When we weren't successful at some of the things we've been successful at in the past. So I don't know. Heading into the game, I did not have a good feeling about it. Uh, And everything I thought could go wrong did go wrong. And anything, like I said, we, we needed turnovers. We needed to make plays in the passing game. We did none of that. I mean, it felt like we're going to talk about the offense a lot because that's, you know, obviously a glaring weakness for this team. I don't know that it mattered. We could do nothing on defense. We barely slowed them down. Now, if you have some success on offense, maybe that affects the game, you know, momentum, things like that. But goodness, I mean, they looked like the much better team out there. Um, we talked about being a difficult matchup, and it was a horrible, horrible matchup. Um, rough, rough outing from the Gators. I, you know, it's not like we lost to like a traditionally bad Vanderbilt team or something where you have no business losing to them and you just are awful in every phase. This Missouri team is good. I'm a believer in them now, especially at when they're playing their best. And we did not even come close to playing our best, but they were on fire that game. And I don't know what we could have done offensively to derail that, but we did not have the guns defensively. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that you're a believer. I know that all season long you would look at me when I would talk about how I thought Missouri was really good, and then it was sort of this... Uh... Well, it was the Derek Dooley-ness of it all. Plus, you know, combine that with a head coach who I'm spotty on, who's supposed to be a defensive guy, and they, they don't get anything done. I guess you combine a stellar QB with some decent talent and, you know, some holdover scheme. I don't know. I guess it was definitely enough on Saturday. It was. And I think this speaks maybe largest Allen to matchups in football. You know, the reason in the preseason I picked Missouri to beat us and Missouri to be good is they're one of the few teams in the sec that has an excellent quarterback playing against teams that don't have excellent quarterbacks. And that's an advantage and Certainly. it's a huge advantage against us. They're almost specifically built to play against us. And that's one of the reasons why I had this as a loss. Of course, I didn't stick with it. I thought Dan had really done a great job managing our resources. And we're going to unpack why that didn't work here. 
I don't know that I'm discouraged. I think I'm exactly where I thought we'd be. I picked us to win seven games this year. I thought if we won eight, it'd be great. It looks like eight's a very real possibility still at this point in time. Certainly, Missouri's a team I think is good, thought was good. They played very well. We're a team that we know has a small margin of error. We have a quarterback who's not very effective. It's not surprising to me. Uh, It's potentially discouraging, especially if you thought that you were buying into wow, we're we're pretty good here. We're doing a lot of things that are that are solid. We're in the top ten, but in reality, we've been masking a lot of weaknesses this whole time. This was a result that was possible to have this happen to us, and it's it's discouraging. Maybe only because you hate to take an L like that on a homecoming weekend on your own home field. But if you're looking at the grand scheme of things, it's not surprising. No, but if you're coming off, you know, we've beaten LSU. Georgia's up. And we're competitive. We, I think we were more competitive against Georgia than we were against Missouri. Like we talked about if C.J. Henderson plays in that game, we maybe win that game. That's how I felt coming out of it. I didn't feel like we were in this game at all. I and mean, we had an opening drive field goal, and then they freaking shredded us. Let me ask you this. Um, how much hangover is there from last season's like emotional immaturity or lack of knowing what to do, how to win? I mean – after the Kentucky game, I was like, there's a lot more of last year's team and this year's team that I wanted to believe. And that hadn't really reared its head until maybe this game. Or is it just personnel and schematic issues? Like how much how much of the like college athlete up and downness and like holdover from last year do you attribute to this? Yeah, uh, maybe none, actually. Like when you look at the film, this was not about effort. This was not about the things you would see under the McElwain regime. Uh, th- this was this was a Missouri team that was just much better than we were on this particular day, and, and to be frank, probably is is better than us on most days, on most days, uh, especially if they were able to get some of the things they got in that game, which looking on film looks like they may be able to get a lot potentially. And it's impossible to know that until you play the game, but I think that the question maybe we're asking here is like, why does Missouri specifically? have our number they beat us four of the last six times when they beat five us, out of eight i think yeah at least. five out of eight when they beat us they actually crush us yeah by 24 points on average or something like that and i'm going to go back to the same thing we've been saying if you look at the modern era of gator football being the era we've been podcasting in and a little before that uh, these teams are all the same they tend to have either a really good defense or a good ish defense and an offense that's so bad, it's in the bottom of the SEC every single time. In order to compete with Missouri, you have to be able to score with them or have an elite defense to right. keep the game close. If you don't have that and Missouri gets out ahead of you, which is exactly what we said in this pod, if they front run you, you are in serious trouble because they're going to feel very, very comfortable. They, this is a team that's built a front run. And they're still built a front run. Like you mentioned, it's a holdover team with Odom. I don't think he has an identity. But if you go back and look before them at the previous regime, that's how the team won their games. They were a Big 12 style of team that played good defense yeah. and rushed the passer. Mm-hmm. And they rushed the passer well because they'd get a lead on you. And that's their recipe still to this day for success. Their defense just isn't nearly as good. But we go down 21-3. That's, that's as tough of a task you're going to find. Right, and not a 21-3 like in the Vanderbilt game where we had been moving the ball and we had some fluky things happen where it's like, okay, we're still in this. They've had some big plays we cut that out, and we, obviously we took control of that game. Even when we scored to cut it at 21 I was like, I have some hope, but we're going to need some magic from the defense, and of course we didn't get that. Um, Missouri, yes, they're such a change of pace. I, I feels like when we go there, 
man, I, I don't feel like I have any hope of winning that game. The environment plus their style of play, they're, they're like a Big 12 team transplanted in here, and that's an advantage. And no one else, maybe Arkansas a little bit, you know, a few years from now will have similar advantage. But, yeah, we just had no answers for them at all. None. And, and I think to, to be opening thought summation of it all, this game was not an accident. Like, don't don't fool yourself into thinking if a couple of things went differently, um, these teams are close to each other. Right. We could have played close, but this matchup is a bad one. We got hammered last year. We got hammered again this year. That's that's not a fluke. This this Missouri team is just a better matchup for our Florida football team right now. We could have kept it closer. Yes. Things could have been done. Yes. But if you're being honest with yourself, this personnel versus Florida's personnel is just not a good matchup for us. We'd and have to play very, really well. Very comfortable playing against us. And you can see that on both sides of the field, they're very comfortable. And and that's just the reality of the game that was on Saturday. Right. And I, I think, you know, like I said, Georgia came out of the game. That was a what if game. What if we hit the flea flicker? What if CJ plays? What if we get an extra turnover? This isn't a what if game. This is a bad matchup game where we're going to have to excel. We're going to have to take advantage of very slight um, schematic issues that they might have. And if we have a, a mild advantage, maybe rushing the passer, we're going to have to dominate. We're going to get certain places on our team. We're going to have to play above their heads. And we didn't get that. So let's move ahead. Let's talk about the offense. So not a lot of success. We start, how, how were we successful? When were we successful? We, we uh, had two, two little drives. Bit, two. Yeah, two drives. I mean, we ran the ball okay in points. I mean, P. Ryan finished okay with some of his runs. But when they knew we were wanted to, we only ran when it was a disguise or when they we schemed them out of it or not just like, hey, we need to run the ball and we ran the ball. Correct. When we talk about where do we struggle, we'll, we'll cover yeah. that specifically. I would say, to be frank, we had a drive where Franks was good. That's when we were down 21-3 and we drove in the field. That, was, that entire drive was a good drive. We had success there completing passes. I would say that we were most successful in getting guys open. Uh, the majority of our plays, somebody was open, wide open. In fact, a lot of the time. Not always, but when you look at film, a lot of the time. That's certainly success. If your play design is leading to wide open receivers, something is going right. And then I think our truest success was, was Trask playing in the third quarter and into the fourth quarter. Uh, you can say that Missouri had to play a prevent style defense and that sort of thing, but that's not true on film. They came after him. That's not true on film. He was carving up the same zone defense that Franks couldn't even remotely beat. And he was doing so with very limited play calling and selection. So regardless, we'll talk more about that in a second. But I, I think the answer to that question is we were not successful in really any regard. And I'm just going to answer the next one so we can get to how we struggled. Uh, we, we have this play calling our way into points as a, as a frequent weekly thing because it's been happening every week. And it just didn't happen this week. No. It was, there was no opportunity for it. We ran some different plays here and there. We just never even had a situation to where we could really necessarily do that. And if you want to look at it, you could say we ran Franks twice inside the 10-yard line to score, which was a disguise sort of run. And, and that he's, might be the way And he's we, good. Like If you don't ask him to like turn the corner just to barrel straight ahead, he's got enough size and straightforward speed that he's at least mildly effective at that. So it's good they're taking advantage of it. But that's such a limited – you could put almost anybody in there and do that. You run the Wildcat – you know, let P. Ryan hammer it in there. You probably get roughly the same thing. Yeah, that's it. So not a lot of success. And now we're going to unpack the more interesting scenario, which is the forensic evidence on this. Is Alan, where did we struggle? 
from how you saw the game, and then I'll tell you what I saw on film, and then we're going to answer why we struggled. But first, where? Where were the spots we struggled on? Well, if you had any hope for us to win this game, we were going to have to at least be capable of running, I don't know, consistently is not the right word, but effectively. They were going to try to stop our run game. We ran it okay in spots, but we need to at least be to move the, like, Sticks a little bit running the ball. If they knew we were running, we were getting no yards, one yard. If you're not getting three yards in that scenario, you're losing. And then we're putting ourselves in difficult down and distance because, again, you're asking Franks to basically control the game. Like in the NFL, you can do this, or if you're Drew Locke, you can do this. If you want to dominate through the pass, which will then open up the run, Missouri obviously creased us a ton doing this. You can be effective that way. Franks is not going to be able to complete enough passes unless you're just doing those swing passes over and over again to move the ball. And they weren't letting us do that either. Uh, Relying on him to be consistently accurate is not an effective game plan. So we have to be able to run the ball, even if it's not we're gashing. There has to be three, four yards to get us into decent enough down a distance where we can control the ball, control the clock, and move forward down the field. Uh, And we just couldn't do it. I don't know. They they had no respect for us passing the ball. None. And we couldn't burn them on it. And that's the story of the game right there. If you can't run, you can't pass, what are you doing? And I think that is the story. In the postgame presser, Mullen talked a lot about how he thought Franks was missing throws until he recognized that the offensive line was was struggling, which you might look at the offensive line and think they struggled and they did until you look at the film and recognize that. And this goes back to the McElwain era, truthfully. First time we've said this all year long, that Missouri was correctly guessing our play call maybe eight out of 10 times. And they were not the first two drives. And what does that mean? Well, let me tell you exactly what happened when you watch the film. We come out with a game plan that is clearly pass heavy, which makes perfect sense. We told you as much. And we said last week that we're going to have to pass the ball. They're going to make us pass the ball. They're not good at stopping the pass. Well, if you've played any football in your life or any sport at all, if you saw our first two drives, two out of the three first throws for Felipe Franks were horrific. He overthrows the first receiver by six yards on a little out route, and we get a we get a, a pass interference call for a first down somewhere else. And then he misses a bunny swing pass, which is going to make a 15-yard gain. And uh, then he completes a pass and then overthrows someone else by 10 yards. So immediately as a defender, you're starting to think, this dude can't throw. And you're feeling increasingly emboldened. And as a defensive play caller, you're feeling increasingly emboldened. And what happens after those first two drives is Missouri begins to bring a corner consistently to help stop the run, just abandoning his defender, leaving a safety on Van Jefferson or whatever the case is to come down, which is a very aggressive way to play defense. Their linebackers absolutely did not at any given time honor us passing the ball. They just came downhill. With every single handoff fake, they just came downhill and vacated. They didn't care. And so they basically said, you're uncomfortable, we know you're uncomfortable, and we don't care until you prove you can hit us with a single pass, and he just could not do it. And so I think that altered the game. And then what that did secondly, Alan, is it altered Dan Mullen's play calling. After the second drive, we became very conservative. Very conservative. We actually ran the ball on a third and two in an obvious numbers disadvantage situation when we should have been passing. Very heavy front. Very heavy front. Very poor choice. And so I think the humanity of Dan Mullen hit him as well. And this is something we saw with UF during Dan's final year here. Not often, but at times when the games were tight 
and we were struggling to pass the ball, his default is to run the football. We know this. I'm not saying this to dog him. And Q, normally he would do it with QB power. He you saw how many times like, we're basically like quit abusing Tim Tebow or whoever else. If you saw him with Fitzgerald, when he gets into a bind and he needs yards, call QB power. Now he can't do that with Frank's. And that puts him even more in a bind. Yeah, and that's his safety blanket. And again, I, I really dislike that being your team's safety blanket. But in this game, that changed the nature of the game. And the game at this point in time is 3 nothing us and 7-3 Missouri with like 12 minutes left or so in the second quarter. So this is the opening right. salvo. Kind of like what we thought maybe it would be. A little back and forth, a little bit. Missouri actually started very conservative on offense. And then I think you just saw they recognized that Franks is really struggling and they felt like the win was at their back. At this point in time, Mullen struggles to play call. We wind up stealing a touchdown a little bit later. But ultimately, we went 3 for 15 mm-hmm. on third down. That is an unbelievably bad statistic. I'll tell you one thing further. We are now 1 for 30, plus or minus one of those plays. Felipe Franks has 1 for 30, Allen, on third down and 9 or greater. That is an unbelievable stat in college football to be one for 30. Yeah. And if you watch the Alabama game, you know, old school Alabama, if they got in third and long, I was like, oh, you know, maybe 50 50. If you have an elite quarterback, like watching two, it's like, that doesn't matter. Third and nine, he's going to freaking hit an out or a crosser or he's going to bomb it down the field. Every throw is available. You don't know. He's gonna, it's impossible to stop him. Obviously, that's like the top of the food chain there. But Drew Locke, Fromm, you get in third and long and they have a respectable scenario and you block it well enough, they're going to hit the guy. Felipe, unless we're scheming him into throws on third and long, you're going to like run a QB draw or throw it to Van Jefferson. Hopefully he picks up the yards on a swing pass. We've got no chance at just dropping back and running our offense on third and long. And that's so debilitating because they've got you pinned in and you have to basically out athlete them for the first down. And you can't do that every time. You can do that a couple times. You can trick them a couple times. That's why it's so important for us to stay ahead of the sticks, picking up yards on first down, being effective. And when Franks is as inaccurate as he was this week and we can't run the ball at all, we're screwed. Yeah, we're in trouble. And I think that Mullen, and this is something we're going to talk about here in several minutes, maybe why he says the things he says about Franks. But after the game, he was very careful not to put any blame on Franks. Mm-hmm. He he assigned more to the offensive line. And again, I want to say on this podcast definitively, the offensive line did struggle in this game, but this is primarily because they were outmanned. Uh, there are several times where Missouri's front four just kind of gets in, and that's surprising. This is not this is not a good front four pressure-wise, but I'm, I'm going to say something I said a lot last year. They knew what the play was. The front four can get in. If they're pretty confident, it's a run versus a pass. It changes the way they go. They were not confused after those first couple of drives. We had them off balance the drive we scored on, which is why we generated a lot of time. But there were moments in this game where we had plenty of time to pass. We weren't hitting them. And so that that changes the way you play as a defender. So I want to keep harping on that. Franks was the major reason why the offense struggled. And it altered our game plan, altered our coaching. Those are domino effects. Certainly, you're not going to blame the player for all that stuff. That's where the coaching comes in. We'll talk about that in Coaching Corner. But let's look at Franks' play now, Alan. He was 9 for 22 for 84 yards. Franks is now 12th out of 14 quarterbacks in the SEC with regards to completion rate and a whole host of stats. Uh, his record as a starter, of course, especially looking at his his numbers, is is extremely low, extremely low. Dan Mullen said after the game, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. 
right? And it was why he put in Trask. Right, it was why Trask comes in, but we'll talk about that too in a second. But when you look at the tape again on Franks, this is really all I want to say this week about Franks. If you've been a longtime listener of this podcast, regardless of how you feel about Alan or I, or especially me, quote-unquote, docking the quarterback, the reason we say what we say is because on film, it's very clear that Franks has not progressed basically at all beyond what we said he could do, make a first read throw and throw the ball away. And that's just such level one quarterbacking at a school like UF that it's going to hurt you. It's going to cost you games every season. That's continually what is going on. So here we are, Alan, in this situation where Franks is now where he is, and and we're going to talk about what we could in this game. But thoughts on Franks for me are that this is not a surprise to me. You were in the stand when this is not surprising to me. He's very capable of this kind of performance. He's not a, a polished quality quarterback who reads the field. His throws were the most erratic I've seen him. He had a bad day for him, but it was in the range of his possibility, right? He, he's he got a range, and if he plays on the upper end of that range, some good things will happen. So the question, has he progressed? Yes and no. Yes in that he's better at those things that you were like talking about. His mechanics are a little bit better. He's usually a little more accurate than he was last year on some of those short throws. He's making some quicker decisions. He'll more occasionally throw a ball like he did to um, Swain or Hammond the last game. I believe Hammond. But he's not going to – he hasn't gotten better at quarterbacking. He's just gotten better at the at some of the things he could already do okay to well. Yeah, his stat line, 9 for 22, 84 yards. And he didn't finish the game, obviously. He's abysmal. That's abysmal. Uh, he started slow before. Um, and then kind of come on, and we've had more success as we kind of figured out what we could ease him into. And you know, here's the interesting thing from this game. There, here's a what if right here. Say he doesn't have that drive to end the half, essentially, where we're, he's effective. Maybe he goes three and out right there. Maybe Trask comes in a little, is a little bit of fool's gold right there. Um, and maybe Trask comes in a little bit earlier and maybe we have a more of a shot. I don't think so because of on the defense, but that last drive kind of masked a little bit of what was the real story of true ineffectiveness. Yeah. And I know in the stands, and this is a question we're going to ask, but we'll just ask it now and then get to it in a second. But when it was 14 to three, I looked over at you and the guy sitting with us and said, I would pull, I would pull out Frank. We did say that right then. Yeah. And and there were several reasons for that. One, he was all over the place and he was struggling and you could feel the momentum was solidly in Missouri. So it felt like the game was getting away from us. And it was and two, you could feel in the stadium, not only were the fans turning, but you could see the players frustration increasing. And there's a moment as a coach when I think you've got to have your finger on that pulse. And I think the greatest coaches kind of understand those moments. You look at Nick Saban, switching Hertz for Tua. Again, that seems very obvious to a lot of guys in their couch saying, well, of course you would do that. But yet very few college football coaches would do something like that in a national title game. And I think in this game, this required Dan Mullen to make a very difficult choice at the right time to give us a shot to win this game. And he didn't do it. But let's talk about Trask. He comes in. He says in the postgame presser that he, he told Trask when it was 28-10 that if Missouri scored again, he would go in. Basically, the game would be over. You get to go in. Okay, that, that's also not super great, but fine. It's there. Trask comes in, leads us on a drive, makes it a game again. Yeah, in cheering. Reality. Cheering and happens. The crowd's super excited, right? They've been booing Franks. The crowd's amped up. We're on defense. The crowd's very loud. Defense lets us down. They get a field goal game sort of ends. Trask finishes 10 of 18 for 126 yards and one touchdown. 
Uh, now, Mullen said on Monday in his presser that they both graded out the same, Franks and Trasks, which is impossible for me to even remotely believe that, having watched the tape on both of these guys. But they did. They're exactly the same in his opinion. Again, things that I don't like here so far from what I'm hearing from Mullen. If you look at Trask, what does he do well? Well, you can tell readily available without having to be a quarterback guru to know that his pocket presence is fantastic. He stayed in the pocket. He stayed on platform. He gave himself a great chance to look downfield and to make multiple reads. He was making two or three reads. Not every time. He's not perfect. The guy doesn't have a lot of reps in live game scenario. But for him to come into an SEC game in the way that he did and sort of hit those passes, don't overlook that. That's not. This was not fourth quarter losing by 50. This is still right. a game made a lot of good passes. There made a lot of good reads. That he hung in the pocket very well. And out of his eight incompletions, every single one of those, Allen, was was either a ball that hit our receiver's hands or he had to sort of throw away because he was getting sacked or he couldn't have made that play. So I can't point to a single throw that he made where you're like, wow, that was a really bad throw. He threw a go route up the sideline when he got blitzed to the outside. And I believe at the time that's either it's Jefferson runs a go route to the inside, which is that's on Jefferson's fault. There's a single high safety. That ball should always go to the outside. So... You can look at that and think, well, that's actually smart. So what I saw from Trask is I saw great pocket presence, Allen. I saw good footwork in the pocket. And I saw that he cerebrally understood the game, especially post-snap. Post-snap, especially. Yeah. It seems to be that Dan Mullen thinks that Trask struggles pre-snap. Maybe not with reading the field, but with getting the team aligned. And he yeah. made a comment after the game that Franks is consistently better at getting the team into the play which again to me is like the most base level quality for a quarterback. Okay, great. So you can sit there and get your team lined up, but like can you do the rest of the stuff a quarterback? Well, the coaching did? can help pre-snap. He can't help post-snap. And if you're a coach, you can get the rest of the players up up a level. You can take that on. Once that thing is snapped, you've got no control as a coach. You have none. And I also think that pre-snap reading wise, I thought Trask looked okay. Now what they what Missouri did, which is interesting. This is an interesting thing here is Missouri discovered that they could not just play a regular cover two zone against Kyle Trask. He was shredding them. Mm-hmm. That's the first time, Allen, since Will Greer, that anyone had shred a zone accurately. Now, this is not Will Greer. Kyle Trask is, I'm not saying Kyle Trask is going to be something amazing. I think all I'm trying to say here is for these two guys to get the same grade in this game is mind-boggling for me, given how they each threw the ball, given their chances. And so Missouri's only opportunity here was to send the house on a blitz on Kyle Trask this is not all his fault. When I watched the game live, I thought, wow, they found something on Trask. He can't have the blitz. When I saw the game on film, we were running a lot of nonsensical routes in that situation. When you're getting blitzed, you typically love hitting slant routes, dig routes, other stuff. And those routes were almost exclusively not being run. We were running a lot of big vertical routes. And they had routes. no fear of us running the ball and gashing right. them up the middle. So it's a little tricky there. The route, I think if we could do it again, those routes would have been different. But I think what I saw is that Trask, even though he took some sacks, he consistently stood right there in the pocket, kept his eyes downfield the entire time, never turned his back to the field, never turned around, never panicked. Those are a lot of good also, things there. That could you he not, maybe not audible into something else? Does he not have the freedom? They're bringing the house and he can't check into like, a slant or something Correct. like that. Correct. He can't make it more simple. Exactly. And so what did you see on Trask that you didn't like? Well, I think, you know, his his velocity is obviously much lower than Frank's is. But in reality, Alan, important quarterback trait coming here. Your ability to use your brain as a quarterback is vastly superior to your arm strength. Mm-hmm. It's also vastly superior to your athleticism. A lot of college fans and coaches fall in love with those two concepts. They don't matter. Like if you know where the play is going and where to put the ball, that's so much more important than the other things, especially in college. So we haven't seen enough from Trask, Allen, to know if he's better than Franks or what's going on. I'm not saying that I'm in practice undermining what Mullen is doing, but I think at this point in time, 
we are going to learn a lot about Dan Mullen this week. What kind of strategist is he? What kind of tactical manager is he? How does he handle this quarterback situation? We have assumed this whole season, Alan, that Franks was a floor quarterback. We said that we thought he was going to choose Franks because he had a lot of experience. And the more experienced guy would be safer in making sure that we can just survive and win some close games. That was true. That worked for a while. We survived that. Now here we are at 6-3. and three. The season is fundamentally over. There's absolutely nothing to play for when it comes to winning something. And now the big question becomes, what are we looking at as a coach? Now, Alan, I'll answer it from me. You answer it from you. If I'm the head coach, I'm thinking development. I'm thinking year one. I need to develop my guys. I need to figure out where the heck I'm going for year two. I need to see if I should be going after a guy like Kelly Bryant. I need to know what I have. I am 100% starting Trask in this game on Saturday. I am also, as well documented on this podcast, a huge believer that what happens in practice is not what's going to happen in the game. We know from Dan Mullen's pressers after these games and on Monday that he is the opposite. He is a huge believer in practice style reps and plays. That is where he puts his mantra. So he says, Frank's grades out higher every single week. That's why he starts. But when the lights are on, it's different than when you're playing against your own team. It's just fundamentally different. And again, there's previous podcasts we've covered this ad nauseum. I'll leave it there. But for me, I'm starting Trask. And we're going to talk about Emory Jones in a second. But Alan, who is your starting quarterback this week and why? I mean, I have to play Kyle Trask. He showed me enough in that brief scenario to say he can make plays. And his floor is not much lower than Felipe's. I think the reason that you're as a coach, slow to remove a starter as a quarterback is different than every other position is that can damage both the psyche of the team can undermine that player. If you have hope that Felipe Franks is going to be starter for you for another year, a year after that, pulling him in a meaningless Missouri game in the first half is probably not the wisest move. You let him play through it. You use it for development. I think we've seen enough that I would, at this point in the season, now if it's game two, maybe I'm like, you know, give Felipe a chance here. You're hoping that he's going to be the guy. At this point, I've seen enough of Felipe Franks in this offense to know his floor isn't high enough to to continue to play him. Kyle Trask is always this specter of the unknown the backup quarterback is always the most popular guy on the team. And I'll give Trask credit here. I said this story usually unfolds in three acts. The backup quarterback, you cheer him when he comes in. He makes some good passes. And then he throws a pick six. And you go, oh, yeah, that's why he's the backup. And so make that change. You, If you're a coach, you want to be confident that you're changing to something better. Now, you can do it just as a change of pace. You need a spark. But you don't want to do that to your guy unless you really need it. And it felt at that point we needed it. I don't know what Kyle Trask is doing during practice that would say he's not capable of leading this team. I I don't know how you put Felipe back on the field after what Kyle Trask showed and what Felipe Frank showed in this game. You can't win with him in those type scenarios. Now, you you know what? We're going to talk about South Carolina. I think we could probably win that game with Felipe Franks. It's at least in the possibility. But I think you've got to give Kyle Trask a shot. If they're that close, if they're if they are actually close, wouldn't that lead you to flip it? Um, I thought Trask, if I'm evaluating his performance, 
you know, there was one of his first best throws. We had, I think, trips receivers on one side. Very nice route combo. He had time in the pocket. He made a great throw across the middle. It was open. It was obvious. He saw it. He had the time. Now, again, against complicated defenses or blitzes, I don't know how he's going to do. But in that scenario, he made the right decision. I don't know that if Felipe would have made the right decision, he probably would have thrown to the first read, even if it was slightly open, and not waited the quarter second later and seen the guy coming wide open over the middle. So he showed me enough. He was always a mystery guy. He's less of a mystery now. We stayed. We could have gone up to, you know, a suite to, like, watch the blowout. But when he came in, I needed to see him. I needed to see how he responded. And I felt like I got enough from him to start him. Yeah, I think the other piece that's important to bring up now is that not only are you managing as a head coach the team, the players, you are also managing the fan base. That's true. And that's important. And the fan base has entirely turned on Felipe Franks. Now, I am not an advocate of doing what the mob says you do. You have to stand up for your scruples and what you believe in. That's very important. But like you mentioned, what what what's the skew here? If we're going to say that Felipe Franks is 60% of a start and Trask is 40% of a start in your grade-out system each week during practice – then you better start Trask because the difference between those two guys is like a point maybe in your in your system, one point generated on this offensive scoreboard. And if you give the fans a chance to see, hey, I will try something else. I will do something else. I will flip the coin, so to speak. They will support you. Fans do not expect Dan Mullen, especially astute ones, to just squeeze water from the rock here. We know this roster is broken. We've said it ad nauseum on this show. But what I do expect Dan Mullen to do is do something our other coaches, Will Muschamp and McElwain, have not done, which is to give the other guy a shot. Don't bury your head in the sand and stick yourself with a guy that's got a significant game track record now. And I know, I know that Mullen has said that Franks was messed up by McElwain, essentially putting him into the game too early. He said as much on his Monday presser, Franks bears the scars or the effect of of playing too early as a quarterback. His confidence is lacking. He's not quite there. So there's a lot of protection, I think, on Mullen's side to protect Franks. But at this point in time, it's clear that not only Allen have the fans seemingly turned against him, the players don't seem to be overly supportive when you're watching it during the game. And on top of that, of course, there's reports after the game that several players got into an altercation with Franks in the locker room, something about Franks maybe laughing off the fact that he's benched, which I think is just a, a classic immature kid move. I don't think he wasn't hurt by that. I just don't think he knows how to handle it as though an adult would by saying, hey, I never want to be benched. I'm frustrated about it. I want to be your leader. This team has a leadership void, and for no other reason, that's why you should play Trask. You don't have an obvious starting candidate here. If these guys are remotely close to each other, you owe it I think, to yourself to see what Trask can do when the lights are on to give the fans, the team, something else to see. And then you know what? Then you've exhausted, quote-unquote, all of your options, in which I think the fans will be much more understanding of that. Hey, we have no one else. What else could we have done? And while we're winning, it doesn't make sense to pull the plug. You feel like you're moving forward as a team. Even if, in in that situation, even if you felt like Trask was like 1% better, you don't make a switch because why the downside is too much. And this point... The, there's no downside to switching at this point. 
No, there's none. And we talked about it last week. I felt like we were in sort of purgatory with our quarterback situation for the future. In a way, Alan, maybe I kind of feel better going back to our opener as a, as a fan who views it as what's best for the program. There's no way I think Franks is best for the program. I've been saying that. We need something else. So that leads us to the last guy. A lot of you are probably thinking, well, why aren't you talking about Emory Jones yet? Well, how do you handle Emory Jones? Well, first I'll say what Mullen said, and then I'll, then I'll tell you what I think. So Mullen said in his Monday presser, he spent about five minutes talking about how he really has a strong preference for quarterbacks to be developed, and he does not like to start young quarterbacks, redshirt or otherwise. So he definitely does not want to start a true freshman and have them be the leader of the team, which tells you a lot about next year. For those of you thinking that Jalen Jones is going to come in to be the quarterback, put the brakes on that one. That There's a huge bias for Mullen to do so. doesn't mean that he wouldn't do it, but he basically spent his whole college career up at the, at the mic there saying, I've never done it, don't like doing it. He's showing you something there, which means Emery's going to be redshirted. I think that's also the right move because you do have to deal with their confidence here. Emery is clearly not ready. We're aware of this. But, Alan, here's my plan. I play Trask for South Carolina. I give him the entire game, and I see what he can do, unless he just is abysmal and he needs to be yanked. In the Idaho game, if Trask has done well in South Carolina— I play Trask for the first half of Idaho. I play Emory for the second half of Idaho. I go into Florida State. Trask is my guy. I go into the bowl game. Trask plays the first half. Emory plays the second half. That's assuming Trask gets the job done. If he doesn't, then you're right back to square one. I don't, though, see a narrative, Alan, where if Trask is bad and Franks is bad, that you burn Emory Jones' redshirt year because Emory Jones is a developmental guy. And I'm going to ask you this question that that JT has asked in our thread multiple times, and we've answered this, but we'll talk about it on air. If, in JT's opinion, guys who are, quote, really good uh, don't need to be redshirted because they'll be really good and leave anyway in two to three years, you're sort of just wasting the redshirt is kind of the narrative. It's the modern era of football. You don't need that anymore. Guys transfer, they leave, whatever. What's your view on redshirting Emory? Like it? Dislike it? What's your view on redshirting quarterbacks in general? Well, I hear that from... From JT, if you have a top-notch quarterback, um, get him ready to go immediately because he's not staying longer than three years. If you have a a guy who might be the number one pick, just play him. You know, get him ready to be the backup, and then move forward with that. There is some value in redshirting. Now, guys might transfer, and you, you know, you redshirt him, and now he transferred. You know, congratulations to you. I think Emory Jones does fall into this category where he's not ready to play playing right now would do a disservice to him. I always think about Derek, no, excuse me, David Carr, not Derek with the Raiders, David Carr, his brother with the Texans, you know, expansion team. They threw him out there. Awful offensive line, no receivers. He got sacked more than any quarterback in history and he was done. He was out of the league. It broke him physically and mentally. I don't think we're, we'd be at that level, but I think you could, as Dan said, do real long-term damage to a quarterback by putting him out there too early. If he's not ready. I think you see a guy like Trevor Lawrence, and you're like, well, he's a true freshman. Why can't we just put him out? He's the number one prospect in the country. He's a every 10 years kind of guy. That's not the norm. That is by far the exception. And at this point in the season, what would you gain by playing Emory? Now, you've got two games left. One of those we think will be the bowl game. That seems to be at least a prognostication for how coaches will use this as a that carrot. Stay engaged through the season. Stay engaged through you know, the practices leading up to the bowl game, you could play there. Idaho would be a great game. Or if you want to deploy him in some packages against FSU, 
you know, same kind of thing. One of those two games. But yeah, burning it and playing him when he's not that when he's not ready just doesn't seem like the right move. I, I still think there is room to redshirt quarterbacks. It doesn't always make sense, but in this case, it does to me. And I think the major counter argument to this is how many guys, Allen, go to the league each year as a quarterback? How many get drafted? Ten on average. Ten guys. How many of those guys are underclassmen? Less than half almost every single year. So what does that tell you? These guys that we're making up as the greatest prospects that leave early are like the once-in-a-generation absurd guys. Andrew Luck, maybe Trevor Lawrence, etc. Jared Goff, those guys who are going to go But guess what? There's hardly any of those guys. That's probably not the guy quarterbacking your football team. Quick, name how many number one first-round, first-pick NFL quarterbacks Florida's produced. Zero. Nobody. Zero. We're a good program, right? And you can do this with most programs. So that is a silly, silly argument to me. The majority of the More time, likely your quarterback they're plays. Transfer. Yeah, but the majority of the time, your quarterback plays until he's a senior when he is good. And so redshirting him will help. Oh, by the way, Will Greer was redshirted. He's doing pretty well for himself. Yeah, he transferred. But the bottom line is you need right. to change over, right, from high school to college. And unless you are a phenom that already understands the game at a very high level, and Mullen addressed this. It's all about confidence. If you can go into the game and confidently understand your job and how to do it, then you are ready. The majority of freshmen are not ready for that kind of task. That's why the redshirt year helps them. Playing college football quarterback after playing high school football quarterback is one of the hardest transitions any athlete will make. It is infinitely more difficult. And so I think that Emory is, we know, especially Emory, is not in that kind of position. I do not favor that. Uh, in the past, I've favored throwing guys in and getting them development. But this is not a situation this year on this team. I think Emory needs to get some more game experience. But I think for sure, to summarize our QB discussion here, Alan, Trask has got to be the guy selected this week. I've got a pretty good feeling he's not going to be the guy selected this week. And if that's the case, I will be here on this very podcast next Monday, ranting and raving because I will be very frustrated that yet again I feel like a coach is making a foolish decision that doesn't really have any significant upside that I can see. I hope that's not the case, but it seems like we're trending in that direction. Yeah, that's going to be tough. If he plays Franks, it's going to be at home. If he doesn't play well immediately, he's going to get booed. That's a tough situation to put him in. Um I don't think that's necessarily what's best for him or the players or the fan base or the team. Like you said, there's there's reasons not to pull a guy and to keep playing and with sticking with him. They just don't seem to be apparent in this particular scenario. And like I said, if you're uh, Emory Jones, like we talked a lot, you were saying play Kyle Trask. You were saying play the walk on a couple years ago has to be better than what we're getting out of Treon Harris. We're not in that type of scenario. It seems like Trask is a, a viable option. He was a mystery. We've seen a little bit. I want to see some more. Yeah, this guy's taken every single second team rep. And we know from Mullen's presser today, which was very insightful, by the way. You should listen to it if you want to get an insight on how he runs the program. That the second team rep takes like six less plays per practice. That's it. So don't you want to reward this guy? He's been here the entire time. He's done everything you've asked him. All he's done is watch Felipe Franks put up horrible numbers that are bottom of the conference. Don't you want to give this guy a chance to play the game? To me, the answer is yes. We're going to find out what happens on Saturday. Okay, James, let's look at the defense. One of our worst efforts, obviously this season, but even the past few seasons, even considering how bad we were at times last year, 
let's start briefly. When were we successful? When we were able to limit them? How did we do it? So the first two drives of the game, and it might be hard to remember this, we were actually very successful. We had a very solid first two series. Admittedly, Missouri was pretty conservative on those. They actually opened the game with three straight runs. I think they didn't want to put themselves into a hole early. Uh, forced a couple of punts. We confused Drew Locke on the first blitz we gave him. He had a wide open guy, and we confused him, and he missed it, hit the wrong guy. Uh, that was probably the last time we confused him on a blitz. Coming into the game, we mentioned Kentucky shut down Missouri by playing man. We played man. Kentucky did not blitz Missouri. We blitzed a lot. That part was not expected by me. I did not call for that, although I'm not coaching the team. I did not call for that last week. I know we blitz a lot. I know Grantham blitzes a lot. He's actually been very tactically sound. So we were successful early. I'm not sure how much the early success blitzing influenced what happens later. But Alan, the real key and real question to this game is why did we struggle so much on defense given how good we had been? They were 11 for 18 on third down in this game. They, yeah. they seemingly moved the ball at will. No will. one has done that to us all year long. What what happened in this game? Well, two things. When we did blitz, we got toasted. So let me read this. I saw this on Twitter. We sent extra rushers, okay, aka blitz, on 11 of 32 pass attempts. On those 11 attempts, just that alone, Drew Locke completed eight passes for 124 yards, and all three of his scores for a passer rating of 257.42. We got burnt, toasted when we blitzed him. He saw it coming, and he you know, just ate our lunch. Two things. One, we've talked about our boy Voshan. When he's good, he is real good. When he's bad, he's real bad. And in coverage, he loses the thread. He doesn't always pick up the right man. Um, he doesn't understand his his place out, out in space often, or he's a step slow. Now, obviously he's got a, a ton of speed. And when I say step slow of reading and reacting, and then I, it's hard to say we just got beat sometimes. Even CJ Henderson got beat one time in a big situation on a great ball on a great route. So combination of getting beat busted coverage and then lack of pass rush. All right, let me ask you this question, James. Schematically on defense, are we doing the right things and not executing or vice versa? We're doing the right things and we're just not executing them. In this game in particular, we did not do the right things. There is a personnel situation that came into play here, but not like Georgia. It was very clear, very clear in the second quarter that every time we blitzed, he was annihilating us. Not only was he reading exactly where the blitz was coming from, but he was throwing into the blitz, which is what a great quarterback does. Most importantly, and this is the most important, there are two types of passing-oriented strategies in football. There's the quick game where the quarterback takes a snap and does not take a drop back, hence the quick game. It's a zero step, a zero drop, if you will. Ball out of hand as soon as he gets it. Good quarterbacks like Drew Locke will not even grab the laces. They will grab the ball. They will throw the ball. It will be a hitch, a slant, a drag, something quick to hit you where you blitz from. It was very clear, Allen, in the second quarter that Missouri had an excellent quick game plan, and they were torching us with it. At that point in time, it's time to stop blitzing when they're killing you with the quick game. Now, they had a lot of third and three and third and fours because they were running the ball well. Mm-hmm. 
which is when you kind of want to take a chance on those. But at some point in time, schematically, that quarterback has proven to you that he is annihilating you. Most importantly, you've seen on tape that Kentucky did very well just playing man, sitting in a cover two shell with two safeties to help. They did very, very well against him. Very well. So you've got proof already it works. Yeah, you're not as good as Kentucky. But blitzing him was a disaster. So that's the first piece. The second piece, and we talked about this, Alan, personnel-wise. We said it was going to come down to our fourth or fifth defender. We said we felt good about Henderson. Said we felt good about Dean. Felt good about Chauncey. Chauncey did not have a single pass. Not one pass, Alan, was completed against Chauncey Gardner. That's pretty sick. Henderson had two or three given up on him, but that's going to happen when you face a top-level receiver. And then Trey Dean, I think, had only one or two. The other passes were all going over the middle of the field on either Voshan blowing a coverage. And, and to be fair to Voshan, I was getting a lot of like hatred on my text thread about Voshan sucking. In the game, there's not a lot of evidence that Voshan was blowing a lot of those passing plays. I mean, he blew a touchdown play where him and David Reese got confused. Yeah. I'm likely to believe Voshan got confused. But Voshan actually was not getting beaten coverage in this game. Not like he's he's losing his man, but I was thinking about that one very busted coverage uh, on a on a very critical critical down. play. He did, but to be fair, on the other touchdown plays, there were other guys busting yeah. coverages. So I think Voshan got a lot of heat in my thread. But when I looked on the film, that was not actually the case. I did not see that per se. We had schematically, Allen, in the second half, some very curious, very curious things on the play. Near the end of the game, well, I think it's like late third quarter when they score a touchdown on the post when we blitz a deep post where Trey Dean gets beat. Yeah, we're in a we're in what looks like a cover two, so we have two safeties fifteen yards off the ball, and they send a a, a receiver in motion. We have Steiner, our safety, chase that. We also then have Brad Stewart come down and chase that as well. Now I'm inclined to believe that Stewart blows this, but regardless, we were having. Full full field safety shifts across the formation and then dropping into a zone. And we don't do it very well. So in that zone, we had three players guarding one guy, which left no one over the top. And obviously, we actually picked up the blitz. They picked up the blitz, which is, which is what killed us. Now, most teams have not picked up our blitzes as well as Missouri did. And they were maximally inflicting pain upon us. So schematically, not the right move in my opinion. Secondarily, we were unable to get pressure, which you could argue the scheme was to get pressure. And if we get pressure, does that change things? I'm going to go right back to my friend's answer. No, because they abused us when they went the quick game. And they also hit us deep. And the stat you read shows they were they were a master class in how you beat a team blitzing. It was like Tom Brady. You know what? You don't blitz Tom Brady in the NFL. Everyone knows that. Why? Because the same thing Drew Locke did to you is what he does to you. You blitz, he kills you, Right. And so I think all in all, this is the first game we've seen, Alan, where Grantham's tactics were very questionable. Coming out of the second half, I thought they got worse. I thought he made things even worse, if that's possible. So his thought was double down on the blitzing. He's got it so far. Because, okay, the other option is we sit back in man. Do we have the personnel to do that? And our pass rush wasn't getting home. Or you said the ball was out so quick. I don't know if I lay any of this at the feet of Zuniga or Polite or Jefferson. But here's the other problem. They ran the ball so effectively. We didn't know what they were doing. Every time they ran the ball, six, seven yards, or they busted it. This is the reoccurring thing with Missouri with us, too. They've killed us in the run game. If we were able to make them one-dimensional, do you think that would have 
affected the game in terms of us being able to blitz more effectively or to cover more effectively. Felt like we couldn't do either. Yeah, from seeing them on film, I I seriously don't think blitzing is the right strategy. I mean, I've watched a lot of Missouri tape. Teams don't blitz them. The teams that have done well do not blitz them. Like, Georgia gave up a ton of points against Missouri, and Missouri could have won that game. And Missouri, Georgia tried everything. Georgia's a, a zone team primarily. You've heard me talk about that. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't stop him because he eats zones alive. Our man coverage actually wasn't bad, Alan. I mean, you look at Henderson. Yeah, you're going to get beat in a rail shot every now and then. That's going to happen. you got to play man coverage. But all in all, a lot of those passes, like, it's a catch and a tackle, a catch and a tackle, a catch and a tackle. And if you play coverage and you don't blitz, you can occasionally do what Kentucky did, which is take a linebacker and double the tight end. Take a linebacker and double the receiver, right? That's very much Bill Belichick-style football. He loves to double-team guys at certain situations to make you look somewhere else. We did none of that. I thought that was silly, given that Kentucky shut out Missouri in the second half after Missouri crushed Kentucky in the first half of that game on offense. So that's why I'm going to keep harping on the fact that, yes, we're not Kentucky. We don't have NFL linebackers. We do not have an NFL safety. But to me, there's so much tape on Missouri shredding a zone defense. There's so much tape on them shredding a blitz. This was foolish, but to give the Georgia fans who used to say it was third and Grantham a little credit here, Grantham's MO is to blitz. If we have better personnel, Alan, can we blitz them? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. It could be viable because, as you mentioned, the only reason those quick passes work are because our safeties are not getting downhill fast enough to cover them. If they're a little better, a little more experienced, they gamble a little bit more there, they get there faster. But let's face it, Alan, we haven't faced a passing quarterback all year long. No. That's new stuff for them. They're not used to a quarterback getting the ball out that quickly. But all in all, here's what I think. Here's what I think. Here's what I think. If you're Grantham and you see a team that is quick gaming you so well, you know they have practiced that all week long. You are playing into their hands by allowing them to continue to quick game you. You have to do something, anything different. And I think his measure was to was to mix in zone-style blitzes that were very exotic. Man on some side, zone on the other. Safety's coming down, safety's rolling elsewhere, and it just didn't work. No, we saw Sean Davis blitz one time where he was so f- late coming in. The ball is already gone. I think some of the reason they were reluctant to do some of the, you know, double team or using our linebackers in different ways is they were killing us running the ball, and you had to stay home on that. I, when you're when you're that effective throwing the ball and that effective running the ball, there's just no. As a defensive coordinator, you have to either go like I'm going to go crazy in coverage and drop everyone. Or I'm gonna I'm gonna double up on the blitz and he did what his mo is and he doubled up on the blitz. I yeah, not our day. Right, not it's not day. perfect. Like we said, we're looking at scheme. We're not saying the other one would have worked. Right, uh, but I think like we talked about the quarterbacks. Right, your goal at the end of the game, if I'm a, if I'm a play caller defensively or offensively, is to say I tried everything. And I think Grantham cannot say that he tried coverage. And if he did, and we get torched, you go on film and say, look, we tried everything. They're just better than us. Fine, that's how you want to lose. And I think Belichick again is the best at that. Belichick won't lose to you without trying everything in the course of a game. Even if it seems dumb, he's going to do it because he knows that he can't do the thing that you're you're doing really well against. Mm-hmm. So as a as a last note, we did get a, a frustratingly lack of pressure on the line here. And again, Missouri had a great feel for when to run and when to pass. There's multiple times they passed deep, but we sent four and they had seven blocking. And you cannot give Drew Locke that kind of time. No. No way. Not with the freshman corner and safeties that we have that really can't cover and help out. And then one other thing Dooley did that was great on film, Allen, is we do not move Henderson side to side. 
So we've talked about this before. Henderson covers one side of the field and he does not shift. Now this is not an unknown concept. Other guys do this too, like Richard Plenty Sherman of teams do. So you don't have your quarterback sprinting across the field, Correct. chasing. So a guy. they can't motion you around, right? Pretty normal. But Missouri did something no other team has done. They line up three wide on the wide side of the field, and they would make sure it was so that Henderson was on the short side of the field by himself. Mm-hmm. And Henderson's a fine tackler, but they were generating equal numbers situations because we were we were trying to overplay the pass. So we would send four versus their three. So we're equal numbers in the box. And they would run it at Henderson. So several of their big plays are them running at Henderson's side. And he's just not getting in there and, and, and doing like what Chauncey Gardner does as a nickelback. He's very passive. So they're gaining four, five, six, seven yards. That's very when smart. When a more aggressive corner might be getting them down to two yards. It was a very, very smart game plan. So I think all in all, it's safe to say Missouri outcoached on both sides of the ball. But it's also safe to say their personnel matched up better than we did. So it makes that a little bit misleading. Like you mentioned, it's very possible that the narratives of this game is we could have done a lot of stuff on defense and it just really wouldn't have mattered. And that's entirely possible. So something to watch for in this next game. Two games in a row that our star pass rushers have been very, very quiet. Now, Polite was about as close as you could possibly be to sacking Fromm on one of his touchdown passes, you see him reaching his arm out and being like a quarter of an inch away from grabbing him. So it's not like it's nothing there. But two games in a row from either the other team scheming it, getting the ball out quickly, where they've neutralized that part of our team, which is a big advantage. When we've won, we've used that. We've created turnovers, sacks, fumbles, interceptions. That is not happening. We haven't had any turnovers the last couple games. Is there something on film that we're putting there or some limitation of the guys that people have figured out Georgia and Missouri are very different, so I don't know. It'd be very interesting to watch that for this week in South Carolina. Yeah, I think I think what everyone's learned is that you our offense is so pedestrian that you don't want to give us anything. And because you know we're going to blitz, that you want to have safe, quick game plays one on one. And max protect when you do throw the ball downfield. And a lot of max protection. And that might be the biggest smoking gun starting with Vandy. Vandy employed two tight ends against us almost the entire game. Now to be fair to Vandy, that's their base, that's almost their base package. But Georgia did it and Missouri did it. So that's three teams in a row that have done it significantly. They're having a lot of success yeah. because I think they recognize what we knew from the beginning. We do not have good safeties. And our linebacker play is not really especially skilled at covering. And we can't confuse you because, unfortunately for us, we really can't play Jeremiah Moon. He played like maybe eight, nine snaps this game. We can't play him because he just cannot get into the backfield. He's not a a talented enough linebacker to play on the line of scrimmage. He's not Devin White of LSU. Yeah, we wanted him to be one of those guys who was like adept enough at covering and adept enough at rushing that you could use him as like kind of the hinge point. And he's... As currently, he's not good enough at either to make him really effective. And the other guys who we thought on the defensive line just haven't been difference makers. We're playing a lot of snaps from Marlon Dunlap, Schuler, and Kyrie Campbell. And those guys are fine. They're good. But we were expecting big years from Conliff and Slayton. And Slayton played for the first time in weeks. So the guys we were expecting to be difference makers up the gut have not been, and that's really limiting us right now. Yeah, that's a great point. We very rarely get push from those tackle positions. And that's been that way all year. We've talked about it consistently. You can watch the tape and see that we get a lot of edge pressure. And teams know that. Missouri was very smart. Missouri almost exclusively ran off tackle the entire game. 
They didn't try to take it outside. They constantly ran right into where they knew they could get those holes. And that's what Georgia did as well. And so I think there's a recipe out there, which South Carolina is certainly going to follow, that's been beating us. So like you mentioned, this is what's fun about following a football team throughout the season is each week it does get harder because each week teams get better and better at identifying your weaknesses. And so far, we went down big against Vandy. We lose by 20 against Georgia, basically lose by 20 against Missouri. Is it a trend? I don't know. But it's interesting because certainly things are getting harder for us. This Missouri game was the hardest yet, and that's a matchup thing too. Yeah, and we'll see moving forward. I mean, the, the teams on our schedule, we've we've crested the peak of our schedule in terms of difficulty, I think. You know, obviously Idaho is low. Florida State, which normally peaks at the end. We can talk about them a lot. They are struggling. And South Carolina will get to in a minute. Um, a more favorable matchup, I believe, than Missouri. But let's go ahead and close out here. James, special teams, anything to note here other than our punter picking up two personal fouls? Yeah, McPherson bangs a field goal through the upright, which will take. He remains quote-unquote perfect. And Townsend, I don't, I don't know what to make of that. Unfortunately, on film, I, I didn't. I had the condensed version to watch this week. I didn't have the, uh, the full extended version, so I couldn't see what he actually did. But he did something twice. He seemed surprised both times. But <laughs> he had a targeting call on one of them. So I know that Townsend likes going to hit people, but I'm sure they'll clean that up this week. And then our only coaching decision point this game, which again was not one we've already mentioned, but just to recap, in the second quarter when it was 14-3, to and I think you encapsulated this well, Alan, I would have pulled Franks. And I would have pulled Franks because I think the crowd, the team, the environment was signaling something needed to be done. Uh, like you mentioned, this is very well. You wouldn't always do that. If it's the second game of the year and you think that this guy's your guy and he's going to develop, then you let him ride that out. I think we're way past that. And that's the ultimate meta of this coaching decision. I think Mullen was way too late to switch him. The game was over when he did the switch The game it. was over when he switched. And I think there's there's a path to winning that game, potentially. Again, these are all what-ifs. But you're gonna, if you're looking at this from like playing this game in a one-shot scenario, giving yourself the best shot to win, when you're down 14-3, you have to change momentum right then. And that's an important thing to do. We didn't do it. We missed the opportunity. Went down 21-3. Yes, we got to 1-10. Then we, we failed again coming out of the second half. But in general, there was a window there. We missed it. I feel like we missed that one. That's probably the only big glaring coaching thing I saw. Again, not perfect. I think would have leaned towards that. And then lastly, a couple of bright spots. I've got, uh, I thought Chauncey Gardner played an almost perfect football game. They just basically went away from him. He's been phenomenal at nickel. I thought Sean Davis, aside from missing one tackle, played another really good game. I'm surprised we are not getting him on the field more. He seems to only play 20-25% of our defensive snaps, but he makes a difference all the time out there, uh, and especially in pass coverage. I think he's been our best pass coverage safety, and he's doing well against the run. He made the huge stop on third down. We blitzed him through there made the tackle. So I'd like to see more of him. And then Kyle Trask and Tony. I think that those guys sit out. I think Tony continues to prove he needs to get the ball. I know Mullen mentioned that after the game, that yeah. he's doing a better job route running. And I thought, I thought Trask... You know, I thought Trask looked good. I thought Trask obviously deserves a shot. A note on Tony. So at the end of the game, you saw they had Van Jefferson, um, I believe Cleveland as our two wide receivers, and then Tony in the slot. Now that's a point in the game where that's not a specialty situation. They're just letting him run routes. We threw the ball to him. He didn't like get under it well at the end. But that shows you they're at least trusting him to be out on the field as just a wide receiver and not just Hey, it's we got a we got a handoff, we got a trick play, we got a jet sweep. Now part of that is maybe Swain was a little hurt, but Hammond could have been in there in the slot and they were they were playing Tony, which was surprising to me. I don't know that it worked. I don't know if Tony's quite there yet, but they think he can be. So that that bodes well for us moving forward. All right, final thoughts. My final thought 
before we talk about some final thoughts is that basically we got beat by a quarterback. That's the first real quarterback I played all season long. If Missouri does not have him and they have a more SEC like quarterback, aka one that's not that great. Let's then, say let me, let me swap him out for gosh, who's a run of the mill guy in the SEC. Uh, it's kind of a weird. It's, it's a little bit variegated this year. Um, let's say Jake Bentley, who we're gonna play this week. Jake Bentley is interesting. I think he's actually feisty. He's pretty he's good, good but he's how about, not. How about I'll give you one? How about Joe Burrow? Oh no, the, Joe Burrow could not do a, right. Drew that's what I, that's what I think. That's great. And I think Joe Burrow's got LSU he, in an interesting he's, spot. Joe Burrow yeah. is the a definition of medium. That's what I'm saying. Okay. He's the medium guy, right? He's like yeah. your value above replacement, and so that that makes a difference. Though is Drew Locke created offense with the the exceptional play? They could he was you could do things in that offense with him that you can't do with other quarterbacks, obviously. And like you said, he was eating our lunch with the blitz. Some guys, you just blitz them and they're done. Obviously you blitz him and he crushes you. That, that bodes well for him playing in the NFL, I think. Yeah. Very important. All right, Alan, I'm going to ask you this. Uh, and then you're going to ask me about the crowd, but I want to ask you this first. We talked about it. Felipe Franks got booed in this game. Mm-hmm. Trask got wildly cheered in this game. How do you feel about booing a college player? I hate it. I hate it so much. Um, now, if somebody does something where they like fight a guy or take their helmet off and throw it at somebody, there are certain things you could boo them for. Like I think their actions, but not their play. These are these guys are not getting paid, you know, very, you know, controversially. <laughs> they're either trying. I, I think they're especially a guy like Felipe Franks, whatever you think about him, he wants to do well. He's trying. You can boot coaching decisions. Like if, if we kneel it at the end of a half instead of going for it and you're really frustrated, boo it. Or we run it into the line for the hundredth time, you can boo it. I would be very select when I do that. But booing or it's very obviously targeted at one player, I think it's just not fair to them. It doesn't reflect well on our fan base. You can boo. Or you can do whatever you want. I I hate it. Yeah, I agree. No matter how frustrated I am with an individual player or how good or bad they are, how much we break down their play here, at the end of the day, Felipe Franks and others, they're college kids. They're putting the game by the coaches. He's not even choosing himself to go into the game per se. So I understand a lot of times that booing is almost really directed at the coach more so than the player. But the player's still out there and he hears those boos. And again, no matter how little I think of Franks' actual football playing ability at a high level, I'm not going to boo the guy. Yeah, I think He's booing doing should be his best. Almost, yeah. it should be so rare, and it should be for something egregious. Boo the other team, boo the referees. That's great, but your own team—it's almost never helpful. Almost never. Okay, James, the crowd, sparse crowd to say the least, especially on the on one half of the stadium. The alumni were largely there. I know you had some strong feelings about this. I don't even know what to think. I was shocked walking in the stadium. I mean, we came out of the Georgia game. We talked about the atmosphere in Georgia was kind of dead, but it was crowded-ish. I just, I, I have no words for it. I couldn't believe it. We're sitting there at kickoff. It's a 4 p.m. kickoff, and the stadium was maybe half full. Yeah, people came late. Now, it filled in by the end of the first a quarter A little ish, bit ish, yeah. But I've never seen the south end zone so empty before in my life. Um, I know Dan Mullen and his presser said that we're in a different era of college football. So I think it's good to have a coach who understands that this is not the same thing. And he even said so directly, you know, 15 years ago, if you had a game, people showed up, 
but weird nonetheless. And not only the number of people there. Yes, Alan, the energy the is what energy I want to comment was, on. Was negative. It people were like sitting down, it was like a 9 barely game. Pay, yeah, yeah, I paying know. attention. So Dan Mullen has said something that I, I very much disagree with. I think he said this after the game. He's like, "We won't win a national championship until we sell out the stadium." That's a. That's not the right way to think about this. Um, now you can talk about. I think if a fan wants to say that, encourage other fans, but. I think if you have a winning team, you'll sell out the stadium. It's the other way. Now, I can talk about we should be supporting our teams. It's a bad look from the head coach to say that. But the energy was dead in there. I mean, from the jump, people were sitting down. Now, we didn't give them a lot. They didn't give them a lot to cheer for. But it was so low energy. And that was surprising to me that it was that low. Especially at the beginning of the game before like things turned. So, I don't know. Uh, we'll see at the South Carolina game whether it's even worse. But the hey, the crowd picked up. If you name, if you want to get people a little more excited, name Kyle Trask as star. Not that Kyle Trask is superstar and waiting, but it's something different. It's a little bit of hope. All right, there's a lot of chatter about a fight after the game, a ruckus in the locker room, stuff going on. Frank's Mullen said no. Are you inclined to believe him? No, I think there's too many people and there's national media reps that have retweeted said stories and, and basically confirmed them. The media is close enough in these locker rooms to to hear if something is going a little wrong. College players are not the most tight-lipped when something like that happens. We also know that Mullen will totally bury anything that goes on with the team. No, I think something happened. I think the players are frustrated with with Franks for sure. Yeah, I'm inclined to... Not this is a place that Mullins put himself in when he basically denies Brad Stewart's suspended, and then it seems like he is that he's not going to be all that forthcoming about this. So I'm I'm inclined to believe the media reports about this. Now I don't know what happened; wasn't in there obviously, but too much smoke for me at this point. I think something is going on, and that that's a bad place for the team. Okay, last year the obviously the wheels came off and everything imploded. I was after we fired a coach, but kind of right before we fired a coach as well. Does this feel like the beginning of a tailspin, like last year, where we're going to tank at that? We're going to end at a low point, like last year, or not to you? No, and I think that's because Dan Mullen is is very cognizant of culture. We've heard a lot to know that obviously McElwain had no idea how to cultivate a culture, and I think well, Muschamp still has no real idea how to cultivate an overall team culture. Uh, and Dan Mullen does. There's a reason why Mississippi State was successful every single year in the SEC at some level is he understood this concept of culture, guys buying in, how to handle the ones that don't buy in, how to handle the ones that want to transfer, how to handle the ones that want to talk to the media. You have to understand all those situations, and I think Dan Mullen does. Uh, the first, very first podcast we ever did, Alan, we had my friend Otto Graham who played on the national championship teams with Urban Meyer. He was a you know practice guy, role guy, but his grandfather's in the NFL Hall of Fame. Very sharp football player. And Otto had said getting on the plane, coming back from a loss in which they were, I don't even remember the record, uh, but Urban stops the plane before they take off and has this big speech about how this is this is one, if you want to jump off, you jump off right now. Because the rest of the people that are into the program, we're going to go places, we're going to win things. And if you're questioning it now, get out right now. We don't need you. We don't want you. I think we're entering that territory with this football team. 
if we lose to South Carolina, we will be full on there. But I think Dan Mullen will know how to handle the guys who are program guys, and he talked about it in the presser, and the guys who are just sort of there for the wrong reasons. And there's no doubt, Alan, on this team, we've got many guys, I would imagine, that are there for the wrong reasons because they were recruited by a staff that had no idea how to build this. But no, I don't expect a cultural tailspin, if you will. Agreed. And I don't think the schedule sets us up for that. Now, sometimes you can just have a tough end of your schedule. This is a winnable three-game stretch here. It'll be very interesting to see how we respond. Okay, before we turn and look at South Carolina, let's recap the rest of this week. Let's look at the national games. Really interesting result. Nebraska 31, Ohio State 36. Is this Ohio State collapsing, Nebraska rising? Both. I think something we've said all along with Joe Moorhead and with Scott Frost are that good coaches make their teams better as the year goes on. There's progression. I don't care what you think about Scott Frost right now. You have to bury your head in the sand to think that Nebraska being in that game until the end in Columbus was not some sort of monumental progression given where they've come from. Not only were they competent on offense, they looked good at times, mixed with incredible incompetence at other times because that's part of what you do when you're progressing, right? That's some really weird plays in this game. But Ohio State has got to be full-on panic at this point in time. They're clearly crippled. That's the bigger narrative here is they have no business not crushing Nebraska at this stage. But if you're a Nebraska fan and you were concerned and you thought you got sold a bill of goods and Frost is a fraud, you're probably starting to feel like that's not the case. And again, these first-year results just don't really matter. We've said it a million times on this podcast. You want to see recruiting bump up. Frost is doing that. You want to see your team improve based upon how they started. Frost is doing that. And if you're Urban Meyer and you're Ohio State, rumors about him retiring after this year, his health is going down, the headaches are back, the stress is back. Honestly, Alan, if you look at him on the sidelines, he looks eerily similar yeah, to this, the same guy that unraveled and walked away from Florida. He looks very similar. To they him. look really bad at times in ways that a, ta- a team that talented shouldn't. And that always points to coaching. And sometimes you have transition years, and they've been super, super successful. But yeah, man, I don't. Maybe Urban's just a five-year guy, and he's got to take a break because um, he can't sustain himself. That wouldn't surprise me. They look like they have a lot of internal difficulties. Now they could turn around and beat Michigan, and everything rights the ship. But they look in a bad place right now. Iowa 36, Purdue 38, big win for Purdue. Yeah, Jeff Brom now probably becomes the hottest coach in the country I think for so. people to want to pick up. I'm not sure what jobs are coming available for him to take, though. Well, by Petrino's buyout is rather large, but guess what? It gets even bigger next year. This might be time to strike while the iron is Could be hot. because, of course, he went to Louisville. That's yes. his, his spot. That's an institution for him. His family went there. Um, he went there because his family is so connected. Feels like that's the only place that would probably pry him out of Purdue right now. All right, Notre Dame 31, Northwestern 21. Anything to see here other than Notre Dame is really good? Yeah, for sure. Northwestern had many chances to win this game or at least be in the game. I picked them to win this game outright. Uh, That's another guy, by the way, Pat Fitzgerald, who should be considered for a better coaching job. That's his program, too, that he went there. I, I don't know if he's going to leave there. And he won't. But that every year, if Northwestern doesn't have like a winning record, it doesn't matter. They're good. Like They're a good football team. And you that's just, a tough place to win. Yeah, you just don't go in there and beat them, which is it, it, monumentally impressive. It's, it's like being at, uh, I don't even know, Stanford with no resources, though. So very impressive there. Good game. Notre Dame keeps winning, though. And that's all that really matters. Their schedule gets easier-ish now. They yeah, kind of with USC and Florida State falling off. I mean, it would be a major upset if they didn't go undefeated. Okay, Michigan 42, Penn State 7. I mean, this game was like 14-0 for a long time. And then I looked up again and it was over. 
Man, Michigan rounding into shape at the right time. Vegas came out with a what if what if the national championship was played today set of lines, which I always enjoy. And Clemson would be an eight and a half point underdog to Alabama. Michigan would be a fourteen and a half point underdog to Alabama. And Notre Dame would be like, I don't know, eighteen, nineteen or something like that. So Michigan, however, maybe Maybe a very intriguing matchup with Alabama. That defense is so intense defense and so talented. Defense is very intense, very, very good, very talented, and veteran. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting stuff. They also play power football, which means if everything went right for them, they would attempt to make this a low-scoring control-the-clock game, which I don't think Clemson would do. And I have a hard time seeing anybody beat Alabama in some sort of let's give you the ball a lot of times scenario. Either way, keep an eye on Michigan. They look super for real right now. And this points something we mentioned, Alan. We said last year and this year that this was the year for Michigan. And they kind of started slow. Didn't look so good. They are rolling right now. And Harbaugh, by the way, no one's talking about him. Yeah, it's a weird it's place weird for them. It's weird for Michigan to be so under the radar and to be so dominant. No one's really watching. Well, I think that loss to Notre Dame really deadened the narrative around them, and they just haven't really turned it around. If they put a whooping on Ohio State, that will change. In a wild game that I wish I had watched, West Virginia 42, Texas 41. West Virginia goes for two scores to win the game. I love it. They went for two twice. They're such a bunch of badasses. That they, yeah, they went for they it. For it. They get iced. It doesn't count or yeah. whatever it is. They call, Time they call the timeout. And they get it again. I love that Daner Holgerson looks at Will Grant and says, do you want to win the game? And Will Grant says yes. And he says, let's go win the game. And that's how they decided to go for I read two. about this play. They basically have four options on this play, and they let Will choose. Like, do they throw the slant to the to David Sills on the side, and they have a, a bunch on the other side? Or he can run it. And basically, they gave him the look to run it. And he's hobbled, and he still makes it in. He had to make a turn there because they basically stifled it. Man, I was so impressed by that. What a game. You know, Texas, I'll say this about Texas. I think Tom Herman continues to coach well. Their schedule has been unreal this Brutal. year. I mean, they're, they're featured almost every week on this podcast because they're playing good teams every year. But Dana Holgerson should retire after this season, Alan, because he's never going to get better than this. They have one loss that they probably shouldn't have had, but... They've had a lot of great wins. They're set up now for a potential deep run, but there's just no way. Like this is their the schedule still him. still brutal. They still got to play it's Oklahoma State so and Oklahoma. Hard. It's so hard, and they're at one loss at this point in time. It's it's pretty magical. Well, the it's back end of their schedule is is the hard part. So starting yeah. this week against Texas, we'll see if they can keep this up every well, week. It wasn't even that easy all along either. That's what's crazy. Their schedule no, is like it was LSU's. lighter at the beginning. Yeah, it's like LSU. It's brutal schedule, but crazy great win. If you didn't see that game, at least pull up the last the last minute of Wilger driving on the field. It's it's fantastic, and Gus Johnson on the call, of course. Yes, I'm. Gosh, can we get Gus Johnson on every big college game? We talked about announcers the other week, and that was mostly color guys, but I freaking love him. I miss him in the basketball, too. All right, for all the Kentucky fans who are feeling it, being like, we got this, we match up, we can beat Georgia, Georgia drops the hammer on them. It wasn't even this close. Georgia 34, Kentucky 17. So this Georgia team, we asked the question last week, is it more Georgia, more us? And we said, yeah, a little bit of both. Georgia's still really talented. They're kind of just not as good as they were last year. And we mentioned on this on this very pod that I felt like Georgia would cover that spread, although I wouldn't want to touch it because Kentucky's a team that's you know capable on defense. Mm-hmm. But Georgia exposed what always happens to teams like Kentucky. When you run into a team that has that much talent, it's just too hard to overcome it. And that's what I'm going to keep saying on this podcast. If you keep thinking that we can win 
when we have two or three top 100 guys on our roster every single year in recruiting, you are lying to yourself because you cannot go through an entire season and do it. And that's essentially what happened to Kentucky. Well, this was the, you're talking about matchups, you know, Missouri versus us. This was an awful matchup for Kentucky. Georgia is just a much better version of them. More talented on offense. You know, Kentucky's defense, maybe, maybe you would take them actually over Georgia's defense, but not by much. They had no advantages in this game. Yeah, Georgia, it's so funny to watch Kentucky get all up in arms that they were getting disrespected. Well, you got respected with Georgia's boot in your face, so stay where you're at. Alabama 29, LSU 0. This game wasn't even close ever. LSU was never going to score, and it felt like when Alabama didn't score, it was an upset. Yeah, this is where I made my big money bet this past weekend, and I feel good about it. I've been on a string of like two or three heartbreaking losses, so I'm back on the winning side. Thank you very much. But most importantly, this is the greatest college football team that I have seen in my lifetime. They may not be the most purely talented team. If you want to look at like Miami's defense, you know, where you had 11 guys drafted. I mean, you can get there, but this is the best team as a collection of players. They don't have a weakness. The defense was talked about as, oh, this defense isn't as good as other ones. And we mentioned in this pot, I don't know that I buy that. They're crushing teams. They're not really bought in. They were bought in in the LSU game. They were not messing around in the LSU game. They annihilated LSU on the road at night with a gajillion people there. I don't know, Alan, if you saw the footage of Ed Orgeron walking into the stadium like a conquering hero. It's incredible. You should watch that. Yeah, That place was an absolute madhouse. And Bama just annihilated them. And I get the feeling, Alan that they could play this game a hundred times and the score would only be that or worse for Yeah, because, you know, Alabama, the first drive, they basically, like, had penalties and backed themselves up. And LSU was, like, stomping around. They, I mean, of course, they had such energy in there. But I looked at that spread and I was like, what is LSU going to do? Nothing. They're never going to score and they won't be able to stop enough. They felt like a victory every time they stopped them. And this is a really good LSU defense. So, gosh, I don't know. You know, this is the problem if you make this season only about the playoffs. Is you get a team like Alabama, it's like, what's the point? It's just they're going to win. But there's a lot of greatness in college football underneath the Alabama Death Star. Okay, the rest of the SEC games. Louisiana Tech 3, Mississippi State 45. They themselves yeah. have a big showdown yeah. coming up this week with Alabama. But hey, Joe Moorhead right at the ship seemingly. Louisiana Tech was a popular pick. Some people were like, thinking they could compete with Mississippi State. But not. this just proves again that Nick Fitzgerald can't pass unless he's going against an inferior team, in which case again. A wild, another wild game, A&M 24, Auburn 28. Auburn maybe relieves a little bit of pressure in this moment by getting this win. Maybe. This is a funny game. We've felt this way before, Alan. If you're the Chris Musgroves of the world, you really want to lose this game because you're just you're sick of it. You don't like the person you're dating. You want to break up with them, and you can't, and you're stuck, and that's well, how it Because if you break up with them, you have to pay them $31 million or whatever it is. And, and you can't break up with them if they win games like this. But if you're A&M, you're just still feeling fine about yourself. This is your first year. You're competitive. You know, quarterback's not great. Jimbo what he's doing you probably wanted to win you blew a 10 point lead not as frustrating because you're getting a pass for this season but still Auburn fans tough spot there Charlotte 3 Tennessee 14 weird we weird. just said that Tennessee was getting better and then 14 to 3 against Charlotte yeah this is still a Tennessee team in my mind that doesn't know where it is and what it's doing and hasn't doesn't have a lot of buy-in I don't think or as much as they would want I'm still not sold on Pruitt. You, I know you're more high on them than I am, but I think you get results like this because he's still 
I'm very uneven as a head coach. Well, I'm not sold on him. I'm sold that he's an improvement over who they've had recently. Well, that's probably true. South Carolina, 48. Ole Miss, 44. A really kooky game if you watched it and watched the highlights. That's a lot of points from South Carolina. Ole Miss's defense is horrendous. I don't know. Uh, That's... Tiamu is the best quarterback in the SEC. Maybe top five in the country. If you you're not, saying he's better than Tua? No. Yes, he's better no. than Tua. He is no. better than Tua. Did you watch yes, Tua play? Yeah, Tua's playing with the best players on the planet, the best offensive line. He has, I think his entire offensive line will play in the NFL. Two of his three receivers will definitely play in the NFL. His tight end will play in the NFL, and his running back will. Tiamu's playing with, I think, two receivers who may be undrafted free agents in the NFL. That dude is disgusting. I'm telling you right now. He is great. But he's disgusting. You're going to say right now he's better than... If you put him on Alabama right now, he'd be even better. (laughs) I'm serious. This is the hottest of hot takes right there. Just watch the guy play. He is insane. Okay. Okay. If you you haven't watched him play seriously, aside from... I'm a fan of his. I I like him. Yeah. If you haven't watched him play, listen to this podcast right now. But seriously, make make it a point to watch this guy play. Because he is stellar. Stellar. Cannon for an arm. Good feet, great. And they're putting presence. up against points against everybody except for Alabama, except for the best teams, right? But you really got to watch him play because I'm telling you, this guy is fantastic to watch. He should be in the SEC for at least another year or two. Love that guy. Most importantly, though, they were up ten points in this game with I don't know twelve minutes left to go against South Carolina, and they should have won the game. They can't stop anybody. They should have won. The game. They, had over, they had over they had over six hundred yards of offense. 600 yards of offense, and they still lose a game it's at hard home. To, it's hard South to take Carolina. away anything from when you, a game with Ole Miss because they can score and they can't stop you, so the stats are meaningless. Okay, are we ready? South Carolina week, the Fighting Will Muschamps. This is a game at noon. I don't like that for our crowd energy. doesn't bode well for us. They're 5-3. and three. You know, decent record for them. It's very Will Muschampy. This line started us being favored by seven. It's moved to six. Last year we lost 28 to 20. I don't know. I don't know if that game has any meaning on this year's game. Well, Muschamp is the same, I guess. This is his third year. His first year OC in Brian McClendon. Uh, Familiar name, uh, Tavares Robinson, D.C., his third year, was at UF. They have 14 returning starters, eight on defense, six on – eight on offense, six on defense. That's – Pretty decent. I think that's why some people are high on them coming to the year. 21st in talent composite. No five-star, again, as a reference. or 12th. Injury issues. A lot of places, especially at safety and offensive line, they've been a little banged up. We'll see if that shows up. James, as you've watched them, what do you notice? Let's start with offense. Where are they at? This game is interesting because the line is seven, and a lot of that has to do with their injuries. I suspect if they were fully healthy, this would probably be a pick 'em game. That's how it feels to me, is a pick 'em game. But they are they are catastrophically injured at both offensive line and safety. I mean, they are in dire, dire straits. And so I think that Vegas knows that there's a good chance that they just can't hold up. On offense, uh, they're top 40 offense this year. Now, that's very interesting because they, they tend to like have extremely good results against some teams and subdued ones against others like Kentucky. I do think they're getting better every single week on offense, though. And I think that there's a reason why they got rid of Roper uh, or Roper left or everyone look at that narrative. But uh, McClendon, I think, is doing a much better job with them. They're much more dynamic. Jake Bentley is having a much better season. Um, so they were playing the other guy for a while. 
Yes. Though, not for a while, but he played. He played. He got so Bentley gets hurt in that fateful game when they beat Missouri in the monsoon. Right. He didn't play, and they win with him, which is pretty incredible. And he puts up great numbers. So both these guys can play. And then Bentley's been the guy. Um, I think what always gets Bentley, maybe that's what you're talking about, is Bentley is just a he's a he's a poor man's Brett Favre, meaning that he will take maybe a homeless man's Brett Favre. That's, homeless is fine too. He will take an incredible amount of ill-advised chances. That's what he does. And so when he's on, he's on. And when he's off, he's off. But, you know, they're 50-50 pass run, uh, very standard spread offense kind of team. They still love the the shot. The Will Muschamp shotgun draw is still one of their favorite base run plays. Sure. And, of course, uh, you know, if you look at how should we defend them, in reality, our standard defensive strategy will fit well for this game. This is a team that can be blitzed and can be blitzed a lot. They're down to their third string tackle. They've got five different combinations of O-linemen because they've never played together because they have so many injuries to starters. This sets up extremely well for us blitzing, and Bentley will throw picks. He will throw picks. They actually throw a lot of picks on offense. We'll be speaking there in the bottom 30 of the country and throwing picks, and they allow a decent amount of sacks. So in that regard, it sets up well, but on offense, they are top four. They do move the ball well. They score a lot, and of course, they are led by Jake Bentley. And they're Jake pretty Bentley. balanced as well. Yeah, led by Jake Bentley. Uh, they have two receivers that are, that are really solid in Debo Samuel. And Brian Edwards, extremely talented guys out there. Debo Samuel is a playmaker for them. He'll you'll see him do a lot of different things. He's an excellent athlete. And we're gonna have trouble because Trey Dean's gonna get one of those guys, and one of those guys is always going to be better than Trey Dean. No offense to him, he's a freshman. Those are two experienced guys. They're very solid, so that's gonna give us some trouble there. And then their main running back is uh, is Rico Dodel, and he's nothing particularly special. They run the ball middling. As far as that goes. So all in all, if you look at South Carolina, they're a very productive offense when you watch on film that doesn't necessarily do what Missouri does to you and you go, oh gosh, these guys are really dangerous. But they move the ball and they score well. Kentucky has done the best against them. Uh, Kentucky did a very, very nice job against them defensively. And of course, Kentucky and us play very similarly for the most parts. Like we talked about, Kentucky blitzes less than we did. But um, South Carolina had a very hard time consistently moving the ball against Kentucky's front. Now, what they're going to do this week, we don't know. I think the best news here, Alan, for us is South Carolina does not necessarily have a quick game, so to speak, like we mentioned with Missouri. That's pretty helpful. That and they don't play at the kind of tempo that Missouri killed us with tempo as they well. They do not, right. So although they're prolific on offense compared to who we've been playing against, it's a much better narrative matchup-wise for us on that side of the ball. And on defense, their defense is bad. This is a curious thing for South Carolina fans. We've actually gotten messages from a couple of them like, what's up with this? Why is our defense so bad? Well, Muschamp is supposed to be good at defense. They have had some injuries, but they basically generate no pass rush of any kind or get turnovers. They're just, a, they're just not a very good defense. That's why teams are lighting them up week in and week out. They play a lot of high-scoring games. They barely beat Tennessee 27-24. And uh, what is it? Garantanamo, as we like to call him, right? As opposed to Garantano. He lit them up, through for like 300 yards against them, and he can't even pass. So just a really curious defense. So again, our standard offensive strategy actually fits well against them. We should be able to play call our way into points in this one. They should not be able to stop our run. We should be able to run things like bubble screens and basic passes against them. However, I think Will Muschamp will make us do what Missouri made us do, which is throw the ball for like more than 200 yards. I don't think he's going to look at what Missouri did and not just basically copy that, which is bring a lot of corner pressure, sell it on the run, make, make us throw. So keep your eye on that one. And then lastly on defense, uh, this is my favorite player in the whole in, the, in all of college football, Alan. Linebacker Bryson Allen Williams. Yeah, I see my name out there in South Carolina running around. It's hyphenated. It's spelled right. It's beautiful. It's incredible. Bryson Allen Williams. Look him up. He's the man. But he's actually a very good linebacker for South Carolina. Their best corner is Rashad Fenton. He may play safety. 
this weekend because they're so down on safety, but he's their best cover guy. And their other linebacker, TJ Brunson, are solid. Their defensive linemen are very, very subpar, especially for a Will Muschamp-based team. That's why I'm not even mentioning one that tells you a lot about where they are on defense. All right, we have a better turnover margin, although if you talk about recently, that's changed a lot. So we're not trending in the right direction there. They're average penalty-wise. Again, we're the worst. So those two things, if you're adding those up. Uh, injuries, none, although there's rumors about Chauncey being a little hurt. We'll see about that. Again, not very forthcoming. Mullen mentioned nothing about Chauncey in the presser, I'm assuming. Yeah, he just said, just said teams banged up, but nothing that needs to be mentioned uh, as a real injury. Okay. All right, let's get down to this game. James, let's start with your keys to victory. It's going to be the same exact thing as last week. Uh, can we stop them passing the ball? And can we pass the ball? I mean, this is this is similar. It's just that South Carolina is not as good as Missouri. But keep in mind that South Carolina beat Missouri. A lot of that, and I mean a lot of that, had to do with the fact that half of that game was played into an absolute monsoon of epic biblical proportions. It was it's, crazy. It skewed the game significantly in favor of South Carolina's ability to stay with them. But they still did it. They did it. We didn't do it. So uh, I think that you have to look at those two factors and, and answer that question for yourself. Which one do you think is going to hold up here? Uh, our run defense is dropping down the ranks pretty significantly. We were once pretty good, and now we're falling towards the back end of national defenses. I'm not sure what to make of that. I still think our run defense is good if we can be somewhat confident. We kind of know what you're doing. So my key to the game are those two things. It's pass offense, pass defense. This is hard because I would have said we could make them fairly run one-dimensional prior to the Missouri game. But we looked woeful stopping the run. It looked like we had no shot. They were four or five yards down the field before we were touching them often. Bad angles again from our linebackers. Safety's not making the kind of plays. Our corner's not helping our run support. Defensive tackle seems like if you have any kind of interior push, they're going to blow them off the ball. If we can make them you know, not super successful running the ball, which I think is a possibility, uh, I want you to look at the stat line for – our three edge rushers, primarily, uh, Zuniga, Jefferson, and Polite. If you see not just sacks, but pressures, if those are above like six or seven total, I think we have a much better shot at winning this game. As you said, you can force Jake Bentley. Maybe not force. You can invite him into making bad choices. I think he's going to throw one C.J. Henderson's way. Does he come out down with it? He's going to throw. He's going to test Chauncey. Does Chauncey respond? Is Chauncey healthy? Um, I'm not expecting Brad Dean necessarily to come up with a pick. Um, and then our safeties. Can we get the right combination of them on the field? Run, pass. What is South Carolina trying to do? Again, they're very balanced. We're not going to be able to, like I think, necessarily predict what they're going to do often because they're going to try to do both. And then on offense, man, can we hit the open stuff? Can we make the safe plays? I was saying this at the beginning of the year, and I kind of moved past it because we started doing it. And then now we've regressed to the point where I need us to come back up to a level of competency, adequacy. Do we make the right throws in the right situations? I do think you'll see some quirky plays from Dan. You know, our usual amount of trick plays, maybe special teams, you know, fake punt, something like that, because we're going to need that, I think, to move us over the top here. This is 
I assume going to be a close game with where we're at as a team, as a program, as a fan base, as a quarterback situation. Maybe this game goes better if Kyle Trask plays in it. As of right now, I'm not feeling so confident he's going to start. We'll see as the week goes on. I'll go ahead and do my prediction first. This is going to be a close one. I'm going to say Florida wins 24-20 just because I think we can finally get the edge pressure that we haven't been getting. As I sit here and think about what I'm going to pick, I'm just thinking through all the ways that we can lose this game. There are a lot of them. Which is how I thought about the Missouri game, only I think much more highly of Missouri than South Carolina. And I'm, and I'm trying to say, what what is my real opinion of this game? You know, I mentioned, can we stop the pass? Can we pass on them? Can we get a turnover? I think this game is certainly going to come to turnovers. I think South Carolina will give us some turnovers. And I come down to this recurring thought in my head, whereas if we start Kyle Trask, I think we win the game. Even if Kyle Trask winds up getting pulled and Franks comes in, I think the the sparse crowd, and it is going to be, I think, a very sparse crowd, noon kickoff, will be excited for Trask. They'll be supportive for Trask. I think there'll be a new energy. I think the defense will be extra pumped up to have someone else out there. And then if he struggles, the the team will be excited to welcome Felipe Franks back in back into their collective arms. I think if the opposite happens, Alan, and Franks comes out and he struggles, and I don't think Franks has shown us before that he's like necessarily super resilient to where he bounces back from where he is, I have a fear that the the crowd goes against it and the team starts to lose it a little bit. And I know South Carolina feels this is a great opportunity to win. Ultimately, though, the deciding factor for me is South Carolina's health. I think they're just too injured to be able to come in on the road and beat us with their current personnel. It just seems like too tall of a task for them. So because of the injuries, and despite my reservations about what's going on, I feel like we win this game. And I, I we're going to have to score, I think, like you mentioned, 24 points to get to this one. I think we score 30. I think we beat them wow. 30 to 24. That's a high-end point total for a team that struggled so much on offense the previous week. Now, again, matchup-wise, Missouri bad matchup. South Carolina, much more favorable matchup. And I think that's where you're at and where I'm at with that's, this game. Yeah, that's exactly where we are. But it's, it We could lose this game, certainly. We could come out flat, yeah. and we could get stomped. Well, South Carolina's not going to stomp you. They're just not capable of that. Like, score-wise, it'll always be close because they're just too conservative. Will Muschamp will, like, dial it back if he goes up by 10 points. So... But we could look incompetent in this game if we're training the wrong direction emotionally, physically, mentally, all that stuff. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see. And again, I really hope that Trask is going to be the guy that that takes this game as the starter. But mm, my gut feelings is otherwise. Okay, let's take a look at the upcoming national games. Ohio State, four-point favorite on the road against Michigan State. I'm going to take Michigan State in this game. I don't think Ohio State is ready for the kind of grind that Michigan State's going to put them through. And this feels like a game they're going to lose. Because everything feels like this is a game they're going to lose, I'm going to pick them to win. (laughs) Yeah. And see if Urban Meyer has anything left. If they lose this game, Alan, maybe you begin to put a lot of stock on the fact that Urban is, in fact, going to step aside. And this will be the end of maybe his college football coaching career, at least for a while. I don't know. We'll see. TCU on the road against West Virginia. TCU, struggling season for them. West Virginia, 13-point favorite. Still seems like a tricky game, though. Yeah, that's a lot of points coming off that win, sandwiched between a couple other tougher games. Feels like this is going to be close. 
Uh, I'm going to take TCU just because I don't think West Virginia is going to put the kind of distance that 13 points would imply. And everyone knows that I'm going to take, of course, Will Greer and the points because that's what I do each and every week. Thank you, Will Greer. Mississippi State on the road against Alabama. Alabama, 26.5 point favorites. Mississippi State has held everybody to like single digit like points. It feels like that's not true, but they have allowed very few touchdowns. This is a high number. I don't know. I have no doubt that Alabama is going to score and that they're going to very much limit Mississippi State. So this is more about how much Mississippi State can limit Alabama. And I'm going to, this, this number is trending too high for me. Um, I'm going to take, this is a game I think you could see Tua removed in fairly early because he's banged up. If this was a cupcake team, I think you might even see, well, Jalen Hurts is also hurt. You might see Mac Jones play this game if they were playing like Furman or something like that. I think they're going to be careful with Tua. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.